the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. There's a message true and glad for the sinful and the sad. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. It will give them courage new. It will help them to be true. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring out. Good afternoon, folks, and welcome back to another episode of Redeeming the Time. I'm your host, Chris Macy. And I'm the minister here with the North Valley Church of Christ. Um, we uh, had the, the, the golf tournament, the charity golf tournament, just this past Friday. I've been talking about it here on the program. And, and we had lots of folks, 52 players out there. We had a few corporate sponsors. And everyone had a great time. And the weather was, was almost perfect. It was a, a little warm. It was at 92 degrees. But that Sunday, so we did it on Friday, that Sunday there on the, on the course, I only know this because I was there Monday to pick up the old signs, they told me that the, um, the temperature on the course on Sunday uh, afternoon was 110 degrees. So we, had, we got away with some good weather, and it was a great turnout, great time, and we raised quite a bit of money for the Copper Basin Bible Camp and OCJ Kids Foster Care. So thank you to everyone who was able to sponsor that, be part of it, and sponsor golfers and, and even golf in the tournament. Thank you very much. Now, uh, what, what's on the docket now? We, we always have things going on up here at the North Valley Church of Christ. Well, up at camp, they've already started their, they already have the, what they call Cub Camp, where you know kids who have never been to camp before, they're up there, they're, the, I think they require for at least one parent to be there. They don't have to hang out with their kid, but they're there just in case. As they teach the kids on how to learn to be at camp, they make it as a, a positive transition as possible. And that happened uh, last week. This week, it started the high school week. And they always have a lot of kids up there for the high school week, and I hear that's going very well. They're posting pictures on Facebook. If you're interested, just go to Facebook and type in Copper Basin Bible Camp, and you'll see the Facebook page there. They're getting a lot of photos posted up there for that. So that's going on up there at camp. That'll continue until the first full, yeah, the first week of July. After that, um, not much going on until August the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. We have our Vacation Bible School, and one of our members here is directing that. I'll be helping out a, a little bit. After that, in September, I mean, see on my calendar here, we got the ladies' retreat, the Copper Basin barbecue, the men's retreat. October as the honors dinner. Then November we had tackling the text workshop up at the camp, and then our gospel meeting here at the building with Guy Orbison Jr. So, quite a bit still to go for this year, but we're we're in a little bit of a reprieve now. Uh, over these next couple of months. And as I've also been talking about, I've been working on a video series, and you would think that I would start right away to get into that. Well, my wife is going to Florida, and I'm home with all three of the kids while she's gone, so I will not be making any recordings on video this week or half of next week. I'll get into that, Lord willing, after that, and really start knocking them out. That's the goal. I really want to get these knocked out and get them 
going. All right, today we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5. Now, I, I almost, I really thought I had started Sermon on the Mount. I really did. I was looking at the past episodes to make sure, okay, where, where did I leave off last? And I was listening to them. I was looking at them. I couldn't find anything. And so if I actually already started Sermon on the Mount, I apologize. Let me know, but we're, we're just going to start it again. So we're going to start on the introduction to Sermon on the Mount. And so if you have your Bibles or if you're just listening, I'll, I'll read it to you. In chapter 4, that's where you have the temptation of Jesus out there in the wilderness. Of course, he thwarts the, the devil with uh, Scripture. After that, he begins to uh, um, go uh, go out into uh, Galilee. He's uh, talking with the folks there. He picks out the first few disciples. The ministry there uh, begins. And then chapter 5 opens with, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying... Now, of course, he's already got the crowds because they, they saw, many of them saw what was going on at John the Baptist's baptism, uh, baptism of him when the, the Holy Spirit came upon him, the voice from heaven uh, speaking. Others have already begun to talk about him because of that situation. Other things have, have probably occurred at this point as well, the healing of every kind of disease and every kind of sickness, and people were coming to him. He's already proclaiming the gospel. And so here we have what we call the Sermon on the Mount. The crowds are there. They want to hear what he's got to say. But he's speaking to his disciples. And so everything he's going to say in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is geared to disciples. This is not how one is saved, but this is what a disciple of Christ looks like. And so let's do a bit of an introduction here of the, the Sermon uh, on the Mount, what we're about ready to get into. And really, let's start with the purpose. This is a sermon of what Jesus expects of his followers. So, again, it's not instructions on how to become a disciple or how to be saved. These disciples have already come to him. The theme of the, the sermon is can be found there in Matthew 5, verse 20, where he says, For I say to you, disciples, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so everything said in this sermon seems to build off this idea of a superior righteousness than what people were accustomed to with the Pharisees. Now, a few preliminary definitions. The Pharisees, that word Pharisee, means separated one. Uh, we don't read about them in the Old Testament. We, we see them everywhere in the New Testament, so they must have come somewhere between the Old and New in that uh, intertestamental period of the, about 400 years. Paul lets us know in Acts 26 that this was one of the strictest sects of the religion. There was probably around 6,000 of these at the time of Jesus. And remember, when we hear the term Pharisee, if you're familiar with the Bible then you would immediately have a negative idea pop in your mind. But remember, in the days of Jesus with his disciples, when you said Pharisee, they would think, teachers, these are the great teachers of our day. These people know the Bible. They're so very righteous. And so when Jesus says that, that's a shock. Probably just kind of a gasp and take it back. Like, are you really going to attack our great 
teachers. And so it would get their attention, but it, it would be in, they wouldn't like it too much hearing that. And after he says that in 5.20, going from verse 21 to the end of the chapter, he begins to explain why their righteousness does not meet the standard that God expects of his disciples. But we're not going to do that today. I'm just getting you prepared, giving you some preliminary definitions. So that's Pharisees. Righteousness, we see that term a lot. The root word for righteousness simply means to be right or be in the state of right or being of right before God. Um, it's the plan which uh, man comes to God, justification. It's a state that is achieved in Christ. And it's the standard by which the world is going to be judged. And so that's, that's righteousness. Now, there's some aspects of the Pharisaic righteousness that we need to understand also. Their righteousness was merely external. It never touched the heart like the 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 prayer parable that Jesus gives, I think that's Matthew 23, where the uh, the Pharisee is standing there praying, and he says, uh, "Oh, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not. Aren't you glad I'm not like everyone else? I tithe this much each week. I'm like this. I'm like that. And I'm not like this guy over here, the tax collector. And you get this idea that he's saying, God, aren't you glad you got someone like me in your kingdom? And then the tax collector." Not even willing to raise his eyes to heaven, beats his chest and says, Woe is me, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, That man goes home righteous. But the Pharisee did not because of the attitude. How can anyone stand there before God and act as if we are so great or so righteous? No matter how good you have ever been, if you've got sin, you're not righteous. There's only one righteous. And that is Jesus the Christ. Every one of us who are considered righteous by God is only because we are in Christ. That's the only reason. It has nothing to do with our works or anything we've done. We cannot be right before God without the Christ. So the Pharisees' righteousness was merely external. It never touched the heart. They circumvented the law in order to justify themselves and accommodating their own agendas, like giving and taking care of their, their parents, their mother and father. Oh, I've given that to God. It's Corbin, meaning I've given all that I have to God. God is dedicated to him. But that didn't mean that, that everything they have, they were actually giving over to the temple and getting rid of it. They were holding on to it, spending it on themselves, but it's dedicated to God. Pfft, whatever. Pathetic is what it was. And so Jesus... Got them on that. Their righteousness was showy, and their righteousness was self-centered elitism. That's definitely, 100%, the Pharisees' mindset. I also want us to look at the finding that phrase that Matthew uses, kingdom of heaven. Now, the disciples were confused about the kingdom Jesus came to establish. We know from Mark 9... They would argue about who was the greatest in the kingdom. But if you remember, Jesus showed them a child. They had to be humble. They, because they were looking for a kingdom here on earth. They thought that they needed swords for the kingdom, John 18. And they thought it was the physical kingdom that would be returned to Israel. Even after Jesus had died and was raised from the dead, Acts chapter 1, verse 6, they came up to Jesus and they said, Lord, is it now 
that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. They were looking for that physical kingdom on earth, but they had a misunderstanding there. Jesus said his kingdom was not of this world, John 18, 36, and literally within you, which may refer to a spiritual change of heart. And so Jesus is not looking for some kind of external, physical, you know, showy religion in order for people to enter his kingdom. Those who are a part of his kingdom must have a greater and surpassing righteousness to what was being exhibited by the Pharisees. The idea of kingdom has to do with the reign of God in the lives of men. Kingdom of heaven, I think, has significance in two ways. Number one, it depicts the idea that this is not an earthly kind of kingdom. And the expression kingdom of God, which you find in the other Gospels, had a Jewish connotation that Matthew, I think, wants to avoid. He does not want his Jewish readers to think in terms of the Jewish nation as God's kingdom. It's not. They will be uh, entered into that if they accept Christ and do as he says. But if they don't, then they're not part of the kingdom. And so that's the introduction preliminary things I want us to know. And we're going to break up this sermon, kind of like how Guy Orbison does. I have some notes from him on how he breaks it up. And so Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, is the introduction to the sermon. We had the characteristics of the true disciples there in the first 12 verses, what we commonly call the B attitudes, which we'll get to a few of those today. The functions of a true disciple, salt and light there in 13 to 16. Jesus' insight into the law corresponds to true discipleship there toward the, for the rest of the, the chapter, or the rest of this, that section, I should say. And then from there, chapter 5, verse 21 to 48, is the first part of the body of the sermon. So we finished up the introduction there, and then going to chapter 5, 21 to 28, and we're going to go with these titles. A heart-centered righteousness surpasses a law centered righteousness. I think everything in this sermon is based on that idea found in Matthew 5, 20 about the, your righteousness needs to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. And so that first part is your, your heart needs to be centered on righteousness. A heart-centered righteousness surpasses a, a law-centered righteousness, meaning that that's what the Pharisees were concerned about. They wanted to be right with law. And if you're trying to be right with law, you're not trying to be right with God. Because if you're being right with law, for example, thou shalt not murder. That means... You can beat your brother within an inch of his life, and if he doesn't die, guess what? You're, you're right with law. But you're not right with God, are you? Point number two is found in chapter six, the whole chapter six. A God-centered righteousness surpasses a self-centered righteousness. And then the third point, chapter seven, a truth-seeking righteousness surpasses a pretentious righteousness. And that's how we're going to break this up. Now with our remaining time, let's go ahead and start into the Beatitudes. The theme of the sermon has to do again with the way we live as followers of Jesus. Uh, We see multiple things in there. You'll see the term, well, let's just uh, just start with this Beatitudes. The word Beatitude, which we don't find in our text, 
is a word that's derived from a Latin term for blessed, which we do find in our text. The word blessed is a judgment pronounced upon those who possess qualities of the Beatitudes. The term can refer to joy or happiness, but it is a spiritual kind of happiness. To be blessed also means to be endowed with divine favor, which always brings great joy and happiness to our lives. God is working behind the scenes in useful ways for his people, and so we're blessed. Those who have the character herein described will find a genuine happiness not only in this life, but most especially in the one to come, in heaven. And those who possess these characteristics of the Beatitudes are entitled to the great gifts of the kingdom, which ensure us of a continual joy, blessings, so that even if for a moment we are sad and sorrowful, the joy will again well up in our hearts. And so I like this, this phrase, Beatitudes, because it's, we, if, we, if we be these attitudes, if you be these attitudes, since we will be, I'm sorry, we'll be attitudes, we'll be, we, ought, we ought to be, if we possess these attitudes, boy, I just really messed that up. You will be the kind of disciple Christ wants you to be if you have these be attitudes, okay? That's what I'm trying to get out. Man, I typed that up wrong on my paper and botched it. Okay, let's start with verse Three, the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The word poor comes from a word that signifies a man crouching like a beggar. He's totally destitute. Spirit has to do with one's own disposition or attitude about yourself. Being poor in spirit uh, means more than being humble in the usual understanding of the word. Totally destitute, meaning that you have nothing. It is not the same as the beggars we may see on the streets here in Phoenix. Those folks are not totally destitute. They have clothes. Apparently they can make signs. They're able to stand out there and ask for money, which they get, or food and water. They have things. If they really want to, they can find a place to stay for the night and foods uh, in the many programs we have here in the Phoenix area. They could even find help getting worked into a job and getting their lives straightened out if they really wanted to, and they wanted to, to push toward that. Some of them have medical problems. They're unable to do that. But those folks are not totally destitute. Being totally destitute means you have nothing, and there is nothing you can do about it, Period. Nothing you can do about it. I mean, you couldn't bathe for it and get things. Nothing. You are poor. You have nothing and there's nothing you can do about it. That's what this word really means. So it's not humbled or humble. It's much more than that. You got nothing and you can't change that. That's what it means. Now, the word spirit, you know, we just said, has to do with your own disposition or your attitude towards yourself. So... This being poor in spirit means you recognize your state spiritually. You recognize you have sin. You recognize you're not in a right state before God. And you recognize there's nothing you can do. Totally destitute. So those who have this attitude, blessed they are. But here's the blessing. Here's what they're going to receive. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Matthew, again, was writing primarily to a Jewish audience, and he wanted to correct the Jewish concept of the kingdom of God. So he uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. Uh, a kingdom has to do with the reign of the king, uh, and kingdom means that the ruler or reign of God in the lives of men. Now, why? Why is it that the kingdom belongs to the poor in spirit? Because they are the only ones who, go, who are going to seek it. Those in the world who have things and, and they don't recognize themselves as being poor in spirit, they're not looking for it. They don't think they need it. They, they're looking for the things of this world. They're interested in the things of this realm, whereas the poor in spirit is interested in the spiritual things. And so they're not seeking out, so they are seeking out God, but those of, the, of this realm are not seeking out God. Only the poor beggar looks and seeks for these things. And so we need to remember, even when we become a Christian and we study, and we, we seem to really know what we're doing, and maybe we're getting asked to teach Bible uh, studies or, or teach the class, or maybe we're a preacher and we're getting asked to meetings and lectureships and gospel meetings. Don't get arrogant. Remember, you must be poor in spirit to enjoy the benefits of the kingdom. Number two, here at verse four, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, Jesus is not referring to the idea that a Christian means, uh, being a Christian means that you are gloomy all the time. You're having a religious look of mourning. The idea that every kind of mourner will receive comfort. Uh, leave this in, in its context. Jesus is referring to a spiritual kind of mourning. There is comfort for these. Mourning naturally follows the attitude of poor in spirit. It costs God so much to deal with our sins. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. When you recognize that, you'll be mournful over what you've done to the Lord. So the word mourn, what does it mean? Well, here Jesus is speaking of mourning over sin. This grieving springs from a sense of guilt, from a tender conscience, and uh, from a broken heart. For they shall be comforted, parakleo. And um, there, there's three things to the comfort here. First, you got the initial comfort. You get a continual comfort and then a final comfort. The initial comfort is found in the removal of our load of guilt concerning sin. Okay? There, that, we're, we're, and what, you, what that initial comfort is found in is when we are baptized into Christ and our sins are washed away. All that's taken care of for us. And that's a memorial for us to look back upon and see it and know, and know hey, man, that has been taken care of. Guy Orbison Jr. was uh, in town Sunday. He preached for us on Sunday morning, and he was talking about memorials. And he let it be known that, you know, baptism, God put that together for us so that we have this memorial that we can look back upon and know that's when it happened. That's when God washed away my sins right there. Just like all the memorials of the Old Testament were there to remind people of what God did for his, for them, for us. So you have that initial comfort. Then you have the continual comfort. And that's going to be, a, a, has the sense of a continuation. I think that has to do with our repentance. 
In John chapter 2, verse 1, if any of you have sinned, know that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We can pray for forgiveness and he will forgive us. So there's that continual comfort. Then the final comfort, our hope for a final rest, done with sin forever. Amen. And we are comforted. And we have to remember that. Because sometimes we have a tendency to cover up our sin rather than to mourn over it. Adam and Eve try to cover up their sins, literally and, and figuratively, in that sense that you know they, they cover them, their nakedness with fig leaves. And they said, God asked, them, why did you cover up your, covering yourselves up? Well, we're naked. I was ashamed. Well, who told you that? What did you do? And then Adam said, well, the woman that you made for me, it's her fault. And he said, oh, Satan, or the, the serpent told me, he, he deceived me. It's his fault. Achan, Joshua chapter 7, tried to cover up what he did there. Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5, tried to cover up their life. Over and over again, we see folks trying to cover it up. We Don't be that way. Be mournful over your sin. We got that initial comfort in baptism. We have a continual comfort. God will forgive us. Just own up to it. He will forgive us. Maybe the world won't. Maybe things will happen to us in this world that's not too comforting. But wouldn't you rather be right before God than right with the world? I would. So let's keep that in our minds. And so remember to be poor in spirit. Totally doesn't recognizing that you know we can't do anything about our sin problem. Only God can. And be mournful over the sin that we have. Don't don't get so focused and down a uh, downturn on it where uh, you're always focused, thinking I need to do something about it. That, then you're no longer poor in spirit. You can't keep leave it to God. Let Him take care of it, and you will be comforted. But you got to look to Him for that, not yourself. Many folks get caught in that trap too, as, as well. And so we always need to be mindful of that. Now next. Next week, if we uh, don't get into something else, so I'll, I'm going to write down that we made it to cha- verse 4 here. So I hope I did not redo something I've already done before. But next week, we'll get started there in verse 5, uh, if, unless we find something in the news that I would like to talk about. And if there's anything else you'd like to know, please feel free to, to email me, Chris Macy, C-H-R-I-S-M-A-C-Y, at Outlook.com. Let me know. Send me your questions and tell me your thoughts on the program here, Redeeming the Time. And let us always redeem the time. Because the days are evil. Thank you very much for being part of the program today. And may the Lord bless you. And that you are always continuing to do His will. And being a light to a lost and dying world. Sinning not to sweep away till shall dawn the better day. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Till the sinful world be one for Jehovah's mighty son. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.